just because you can get a loan to a school doesn't mean that you should be going to it, which is why today we talk about outcomes, student loans, and skills fund with the CEO of skills fund, Rick O'Donnell. If you're someone that's thinking about doing a coding boot camp and are trying to figure out finances, this is the episode for you. And make sure you go to breakingintostars.com slash webinar so we can help you get to where you want to go. The Career Karma app is in the App Store now. And for those of you that don't know, uh, Career Karma helps people become software engineers by matching them with the right coding boot camps and giving them support for the rest of their life. After you go to breakingstars.com slash webinar and book a time with me, I'll make sure I give you the access code so we can get you the right peers, coaches, and mentors to get you to where you want to go. If you have not joined the Breaking Stars community yet on Facebook, make sure you do that. Like our page. Leave a review on iTunes, positive or negative. Leave a review for the app as well. Uh, we, we want feedback. Feedback is a gift that helps us make it better and better so we can get closer to our goal of helping a billion people in 10 years. And uh, yeah, without further ado, let's break in. Growing up, we're told that in order to be successful, you need to be a banker, a doctor, or a lawyer. That's what the gatekeepers want you to think. But we're part of something bigger. We're part of a technological revolution. Either you're at the table or on the table. Get in the end. 10x. Yo, 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 this is Ruben Harris. I'm here with the homies Archer and Timo Meister. And this is the Breaking Stars podcast. Archer, can you please tell the people what we're doing today? Yeah, it's uh, Tuesday morning around 8 a.m. And we're super excited about our recording this morning. And we're recording someone virtually coming to us from Austin, Texas. And over there, it's about 100 degrees, so pretty hot. And out in San Francisco, it's pretty breezy. Around it's like 58 degrees right yeah, now. Yeah, 58 degrees. And um, yeah, we're really excited for our conversation today. We're going to be speaking about a lot of topics, but I think financing is something that comes up over and over and over again when people think about making a career transition. So today is going to be really helpful around how to afford a career transition. Yeah. So without further ado, Timo, can you please introduce the guest? Yeah, Arthur. So today we have a special guest. His name is Rick O'Donnell. And Rick is the CEO and founder of Skills Fund. Just from the name of it, Skills Fund is a place that provides people with an opportunity to acquire skills, and they provide financing for students who want to afford afford the tuition and uh, living expenses as they're career transitioning. Before that, Rick worked for, as an executive director for the Colorado Department of Regulatory Agencies. He also worked as a director for the Department of Higher Education, where he oversaw 20, 29 public colleges and universities in Colorado. Since starting Skills Fund in 2015, Skills Fund has um, provided over $100 million in student loans. And we're just excited to have Rick on the podcast to share with all of our listeners how they should be thinking about their career transition and how they can afford it as well. So before we begin, I just want to say, welcome, Rick. Guys, thanks. It's great to be with you this morning. Appreciate it. Yeah. yeah thank you. For- uh, thank you uh, for coming in. I know it's early on your end too. So when it comes to loans, a lot of people are familiar with student loans. But can you explain to our listeners, how are student loans different than the skills fund loans? Yeah. The, the primary difference is where we would let a student use our loan, right? So a loan's a loan and you pay it back. Mm -hmm. Uh, What we do that's different from most student loans is we actually 
our motto, unofficial motto is we won't finance students to go to crappy schools. Mm -hmm. And so you can't come to us and take out a loan to go to any college or university or boot camp you want to. You can only get a loan from us if it's from a school that we've actually gone in and looked at and believe it's going to give you a quality education and is worth, frankly, the money you're going to spend on it. And so we're really almost an accrediting agency that happens to give student loans rather than just you know random student loans to whatever you want to do. Yeah. So to be very clear, that means that you are basing the loan on the acceptance into the program, not on the person's credit history, or is that accurate? Well, it's, it's a little bit of both. So the first thing we do is when you think about lending, you, you want to underwrite the loan. And so we underwrite first the use of the loan. So similarly, if you take out a mortgage, your mortgage company is going to send an inspector to inspect the house and they're going to have an appraiser to make sure the house is worth it. Mm-hmm. Similarly, we have a process where we say, hey, if you go to this school, if you go to this coding boot camp, are you likely to graduate, graduate on time? Mm-hmm. Are you actually going to get a job? And is the job in coding or something totally unrelated? And does the job pay anything? And we have really clear standards. And if a school meets our standards, then we want to finance as many of their students as we possibly can to create as much access. Mm-hmm. But that said, we still will look at a student's credit for a variety of reasons. One is we don't want to be a predatory lender. And an example of that would be if someone has you know $400,000 of other loans and they tell us that they're going to a school where the, the job they're going to get when they leave is going to pay them $60,000. To pile on more debt would be irresponsible to, to mm-hmm. that student and to us. So yeah. we will look at students' credit. And depending on the school, right, we partner with our schools. We will approve or deny, frankly, more borrowers or fewer, fewer students based on what the school is telling us that you know, their financing needs are and how they're trying to enroll their student population. Yeah. As, a, as a fighter for you know, higher ed reform, you know, when people think about you know, reform, like loans are something that comes up a lot, especially student loans. So for people that don't, this kind of like have gotten student loans, but don't really know all the dynamics of traditional student loans in like higher education. Can you kind of unpack that and, and why, and talk a little bit about why that's such a dicey issue? So in most traditional higher ed, you can use like particularly federal student loans, which is the big, you know, $1.5 trillion gorilla in the room. Yeah. If you go to a school that's accredited. And so there are accrediting agencies that say, hey, that's a good university or a good community college. The problem is those accrediting agencies are paid for, paid by the actual institutions they accredit. And so, and if they get it wrong, if they say that's a good college and it's a horrible institution and I'll, you know, um, I know of a public college in this country that has a probably less than 20% of the students graduate. Uh-huh. It, it's really a horrible college. It, it should be shut down, but it, the creditors keep saying it's okay. So if you enroll there, and you drop out after a semester or two and you have debt and no degree or you graduate and can't get a job, nothing bad happens to the accreditor for being wrong. And frankly, nothing bad happens to the college. It just keeps enrolling more students and they pay for that with a student loan. The, the people hurt is the student, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Has, a, has, a, has a weak career. And so, but what that means for the student is just because you can get a loan to go to a school doesn't mean you should be going mm-hmm. to that school or that it's worth the price they're charging you. Because the school really, if you default on the loan, only in the most egregious cases is a school ever going to be harmed in traditional higher ed. And so their incentive is just enroll as many students as possible who are going to pay the full tuition price, regardless of whether the student can afford it 
or not with all the debt they have. Yeah. Yeah. And what does it say about, uh, I guess, the, the student loan, even crisis at the moment? Because there's a lot of people who just leave colleges with enormous amounts of debt. And the ironic part is a lot of them don't even go into the jobs that they studied or, or don't go into the fields that they wanted to go when they first signed up and took on this loan. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 you know, we have a massive problem in this country. It's there's no magic silver bullet, but you know, there's this belief that all college is good and everyone should go to college. And so, for the last kind of fifteen, twenty years, we've done everything we could to drive access to college. And access is great; everyone should have an opportunity. But there wasn't the the countervailing part of that equation is two things. One, are the is not all schools are equally good, right? So there wasn't as much differentiation between good and bad. And then two, there wasn't actually some personal responsibility required. You could go get a federal loan mm-hmm. to go to a school, even if you weren't prepared to go to the college. Right? Yeah. If, you, if you, right? And so we're really enabling people to make really bad decisions. And to me, that's kind of the heart of the problem is, is we really should be helping students make wise yeah, decisions. Yeah rather than poor decisions. Yeah, and I love your emphasis on skills as well because you guys get to know the programs that people are enrolling into and then looking at the outcomes, looking at where comp- where graduates work at, how much they're making, does this degree make sense or does this skill acquisition journey make sense? Yeah. And so you're almost like ensuring that not just the candidate or the school, but like you're ensuring the whole system, the whole equation makes sense, that there's ROI for all the partners involved. And you also introduced, and you mentioned in the pre-chat that you're also like a chair for CIRs. Can you just touch a little bit on the importance of CIRs and kind of why should people pay attention to those? Yeah. So when we first started Skills Fund, we would go to a coding boot camp and say, you know, what are your outcomes? And mm-hmm. they'd say 80% of our students got jobs. And we quickly learned, 99% got jobs. We quickly learned that every school, that meant something different. It, mm-hmm. That meant any job, even hired by the school. Some schools, it meant, no, it, it meant, you know, you are a software engineer. Some schools, it meant part-time, full-time. And so it became quickly apparent that there were no apples-to-apples comparison. And how could you really trust, right? And then we discovered that some schools would say, well, no, yes, 99% of our students got jobs. But we're only talking about the 25% of the students who used our career services. Mm-hmm. And so the question, well, what about the other 75% of your students? You're not even telling us what happened to them. Yeah. So we worked and helped lead an effort with a group of schools to establish the Council on Integrity and Results Reporting, SIR. And that really is a standard setting body for how schools should release outcomes. And mm-hmm. it's really simple. If 100 students enroll, tell us what happened to them. How many graduated at all? How many graduated on time? How many got full-time jobs? If you're a software engineering school in software engineering, were they part-time jobs, full-time jobs, internships? How many got other jobs, right? That may be great jobs, but they were out of field. How many are unemployed? And then what did they make? And then have all that audited by your auditor so that there's confidence in the integrity, right, of the results. And it's it's a little bit like, serves a little bit like, you know, standards for when we go buy, you know, fish or meat at the grocery store and it's like, this is a one, two, three, four welfare rating, right? Well, yeah. how, what does that mean? Yeah. Yeah. Someone said, these are the standards. And it's really important for students to know that the schools are going to, frankly, telling them the truth about, you know, the probability, right? Every student's different. So it's no guarantee that the students can have that identical outcome. But if you're going to a school and you're like, look, 99% of the students are graduating on time and 80% of them are getting full-time jobs and what the school's training me for, the odds are pretty good mm-hmm. that if I'm admitted to this school, I'm going to have that outcome. And that's, yeah. that's important for students to know when they're, when they're picking a yeah. school. Yeah. And 
I think it's super important where you, the importance of CRRs as well, because right now when you go on review sites like Yelp or Course Report or SwitchUp, you find that a lot of the schools are, have a five-star rating or close to a five-star rating, which is actually deflationary because it can be that all 100 boot camps have a five-star results, right? And a lot of it, it has to do like various biases that happen on and like the fact that like successful students are more, the ones leaving the reviews. But I think when I was going through, when I was preparing to go through a coding bootcamp, skills funds didn't exist. And so the only thing I could rely on for sure was literally going through LinkedIn and looking up where the alumni are working at and literally just going through hundreds and hundreds of profiles to make sure that these people were employed after the program. And that's how I picked my coding bootcamp. But I think for anyone that's listening who's considering doing bootcamp, then definitely look into CIRs because that's probably one of the strongest data points in terms of the school you're about to go into and what results you could expect and how long your job placement is going to take as well. Because it's not just how many people get jobs. It's also within the first three months, six months, and so on. So there's a lot of useful data in those reports. Yeah. And and speaking of, of skills, when people think about education and a career change, something else that they think deeply about is credentials. I mean, the signal that it plays. And a lot of times that affects tuition and things like that. So what's, what are your thoughts about credentials, the brand of the institution that you go to, how it affects tuition and, and things like that, and, and your thoughts around like education reform? Yeah, well, I think, you know, if you put yourself in the shoes of an employer, how do you know that someone has can do the job? And so you tend to rely on proxies. So you could say, hey, they have a degree in accounting, so they should be a good accountant, or they have a computer science degree, so they should be able to code, or they went to a top-tier school whose brand I recognize. I think what's become apparent over the last decade or two is those traditional proxies don't work, right? So two-thirds of employers say people with a four-year college degree can't actually do basic four-year college critical thinking, writing skills, communication skills, or just because you went to a top-tier university doesn't necessarily mean you you may have gotten a computer science degree, but that doesn't actually mean you can actually code very well, right? And so I think what employers are now trying to find is real evidence to proof of skills and not just name brands and degrees. And that's why things like coding schools that can produce graduates with real skills are flourishing. I think one of the founders, I think it was of Hack Reactor, said once that you know they don't they're not selling credentials they're selling outcomes yeah and it's the piece of paper that says i went to this coding bootcamp isn't as important as employers want to hire you because they know you can do something because you got the skills at hack React. yeah yeah and uh, we get a lot of people who come to us and they're considering coding boot camps and then they're seeing uh, they're seeing some boot camps shutting down and then some boot camps getting acquired what are your thoughts on the industry trends that are going on right now yeah, I mean, enrollments are up, right? Coding bootcamp as an industry probably barely existed six years ago. This year, you're probably going to have 35,000 plus students graduate from them, and it's been yeah. growing every year. But in any industry, you, you know, part of the challenge is some of the early, you know, dev bootcamp was maybe one of the first bootcamps. Uh, dev bootcamp spent a lot of time and money just legitimizing the whole notion of a bootcamp. Like, could mm-hmm. you actually teach someone coding in, in five or six months? And will employers hire those people? And frankly, they probably had first from as a startup first mover disadvantage. Yeah. And so other boot camps could come along like, hey, you've created an industry. Thank you. And now you've spent all your money and all your investors' money and now they're they're burnt, they're right, they're tired. So that happens a lot in a new industry. So I think a lot of it is just enrollments are growing, notwithstanding 
schools merging, consolidating, and new schools starting. So that's, you know, that's just kind of normal startup industry growth. And which I think is really healthy because it shows there's a lot of vibrancy in the space. Yeah. yeah. And, and speaking of the space and outcomes and graduates, some people say it's the college killer and some people say it's an alternative to college. And then some people are like, what's the size of this market? And in the pre-chat, you talked about your thoughts on like which space it's addressing and talking about the graduate school market. So even though they're graduating 35,000 people a year now versus like 50,000 at four-year universities. What are your thoughts about the size of just like the graduate school market, how boot camps are creating these accelerated learning pathways and how that's going to change things going forward? Yeah. So I tend to start thinking first about where are the jobs, right? And there are millions of unfilled high skill tech related jobs, right? Yep. So the, the labor market has way more demand for skilled software developers, project managers, people that coding boot camps might graduate than 50,000, 80,000, even if boot camps got up to 100,000 graduates a year, the labor market demands are so great. It's just a sort of a drop in the bucket. So there's yeah. huge room for growth. I do believe boot camps are disruptive. If you, if you go back to the Clay Christensen kind of disruptive innovation model, mm-hmm. boot camps are a disruptive innovator. And I think what they're disrupting is graduate school. I think graduate school, and not just, not just computer science, just in general, you know, the two-year full-time MBA is dying, right? Yeah. Unless you're getting to a top 10 program, no one's going to go back and take two years out of the workforce and spend 150K to get an MBA. Yep. It's not worth it. And so, but again, it's driven by employers because employers want to hire a bootcamp graduate who probably has a college degree, has some real-world work experience, now has a real coding skill. That's really attractive to an employer. Hiring someone who's six months out of high school, went to a coding school, and doesn't have any other skills or the soft skills in a workplace, I don't know that employers are ready to do that in, at large numbers, right? And yeah. so um, coding boot camps and, and, and the model, right? So we now see people in nursing and business and the legal profession and other master's degree program, education entrepreneurs saying, well, why can't I do for you know marketing, a master's in marketing, what the boot coding bootcamp did? Why, why can't I compress it? So I think that model is going to disrupt graduate education. I think your different models are going to have to be developed to replace the undergraduate degree. I mean, I think it. I think the undergraduate degree is ripe for disruption. I think it's going to be harder. But you know, most countries, your undergraduate degree is three years, not four years. And you know, you could probably do two years of really good critical thinking, writing. You know, understand how the world works, and then like a six month boot camp, mm-hmm. and you have a two and a half year undergraduate degree. That's probably powerful, but probably a decade away from really seeing that take off would be my, yeah, my, my yeah. judgment. And I love what you said in the pre-chat that in, in an ideal world, you would love for someone to understand what is their return on the time they invested to acquire the skill. Because then you can evaluate the options and you can evaluate, uh, is it worth your time? Is it worth your money? Is it worth taking on this debt? When it comes to skills fund, can you dive a little deeper in terms of the terms of the loans? And how does someone go about paying them back once they're either through the program or as they're like in the job, already in the job? Yeah, so we've done a, a couple of features. So one, we have basically flat universal interest rates. So unlike really any many traditional loans or other lenders, if you are admitted to a school and want to take out a loan, we tell you right up front what the interest rate's going to be so you can calculate your monthly repayment in advance and know that, hey, I'm going to borrow $10,000 and therefore I'm going to have to pay back if I take out a three-year loan or a five-year loan, I, you know, I'm going to pay back 325 bucks a month after I graduate. And most of our loans, you make interest-only payments while you're in school. And then 
full payments 60 days after graduation so that you can get through school, find a job, and then you start paying back. We actually, you know, this again, this is a critique of the traditional higher ed system. I have so many students who take out student loans and no one ever told them they should actually make their interest payments while they're in school because otherwise all that just accrues and adds to the amount of debt they're going to owe and makes the cost of financing so much more expensive. So we're constantly trying to help our students figure out how to reduce the cost of financing. And what we see is, uh, you know, and then we, we won't work with a school. Like one of our criteria for partnering with the school is literally, you know, what is the average starting salary of the first job of their graduates? And if you can't expect someone to be able to, you know, have rent and live and eat and pay other bills and pay back their skills fund loan on that first starting salary, then we don't want to partner with that school because mm-hmm. the students are going to struggle. That's bad for us. But that's also a sign that you know the school's either probably overcharging tuition amounts or not doing a good enough job if graduates in their first job can't afford the, to pay back the loan that they just took out to go to that school. I mean, I think that's a great ex- explanation. And I know that the podcast is focused on like education and reform and stuff like that, but you touched on some really, really important things on the financial literacy side, literary side of stuff. I think it'd be helpful for the listeners to unpack just like what interest is, what paying principle is, like all that type of stuff and like why some people that pay student loans for years in traditional education, like never even start paying off the principal until they're way older. So can you kind of like unpack that a little bit? Yeah. So in any, in most loans, right, you, you have, let's say you want to borrow $10,000 in tuition, you're going to pay an interest rate on it, right? And it depends on if it's subsidized by the taxpayers for federal loans, it'll be lower. And your interest rates may vary based on your credit. If that's what the lender does, we don't do that. But you know you're going to pay. Let's just you know say you're paying five percent a year, which is low in this market. But you know on that ten thousand dollars, you're going to pay five hundred bucks every year until you start paying down that ten thousand dollars. So if you go to get a four year degree and every year you're borrowing ten thousand dollars and you're not paying interest payments, by the time you graduate, not only are you going to owe the forty thousand dollars, those interest payments you have been making have accrued, and you start paying you know start being charged interest on the interest, and suddenly you may graduate from college and. Already have accrued, you know, forty eight thousand dollars in debt, and uh, not just forty thousand. Yeah. And so you're, you're, and then, um, and so it's just, you know, and like any, just like a mortgage or anything, you tend to, if you, your first payment, you know, might be eighty percent to pay down interest that you owe and a little bit of principal. So it takes a long time for your principal amount to drop, where you start getting ahead of the curve, and that's why, you know, not taking out too many loans, having a low interest rate, and trying to pay the interest as you go is generally a you know, a, a much wiser and cheaper way to finance education than deferring all that to some point in the future when the loan amount balloons. Yeah. And for your loans, what is the duration of the loan? Like, is it a, like you mentioned that you start paying it off once you graduate the program and get a job, but how long is the loan for so our listeners could calculate like their interest payments? Yeah. So we have three and five year loans. And I would encourage if you, you know, and even if you just want to play around with it, but, but every school we work with, you can go to the Skills Fund website and we have a little loan calculator and you literally can put in, hey, I want a three-year loan for $12,000 or $8,000 and here's my, my, my full repayments can be going to graduate. Or what happens if I switch to a five-year loan? And we picked three and five years because they're long enough to make the payments affordable. Right? You want people to be able to afford them, but not so long that you know they're going to pay so much in interest that really makes that, that calculus on, is the investment of the school worth it? And you got to ask, you know, should someone really be spending seven or 10 years to pay off a $10,000 coding school education? Probably not really wise financially for someone to do that. So 
by limiting the duration of our loans, we've tried to find the sweet mm-hmm. spot of it's affordable, it drives access, but we're also not getting people yep. to in over their head in yep. terms of debt. And I know one of the attractive features with skills funds loans that you guys will cover for certain bootcamps, you'll cover tuition plus living expenses. And that's something that comes up a lot with our listeners because like just getting a scholarship or getting financial aid or getting getting a loan or saving up saving up enough money to cover the tuition is only a percentage of the cost you're gonna incur over your career transition. And a lot of the time rent, food, like other expenses that you might have, even like student loan payments on your old loans could be a factor. And so being able to budget at least like five, ten thousand dollars on top of that will ensure that you have you're actually able to complete the transition, not run out of money a month before you find a job. And so can you just talk a little bit more about like I guess how do the living expenses factor into the loan? And then yeah, like so how how does that work? And then what schools accept that? So we really work with our schools to figure out what, you know, do they do their students need living expense assistance and then what should it be? So, you know, it may be we work with a school that has a campus in San Francisco and New York where the cost of living is higher than a campus in Denver. And so it actually may vary by campus. Or some schools expect their students to, you know, purchase a, you know, very high-end, you know, $3,500 laptop, right? So we may add, uh, you know, equipment purchase on top of that as part of the cost of living. So, and what that is, when you borrow your loan, then we, we, we send the tuition portion straight to the school on behalf of the student. And then the cost of living gets sent straight to the student. You know, when they apply, they give us their checking account information or, or we can mail them a check. And then they have that, you know, to live on to pay their bills while they're, you know, in the program and, and looking for a job afterward. Yeah. How does it? So there's some bootcamps that offer like a six month guarantee to their students, and they also offer like a skills funds option. So if someone is paying off a skills funds loan from the day they started, and then let's assume they don't get a job within six months, then what happens to their skills funds loan? So it depends on the school. I mean, it, it's uh, you know if you take out a loan from Skills Fund, uh, you're obligated to pay it back, uh, mm-hmm. right? So you're signing a promissory note. Uh, yeah. We give you lots of disclosures. Say, hey, this is debt. Be really clear what you're doing. You you owe this back. If you don't pay it back, we will report it to credit bureaus, right? So there's a personal responsibility. But if you're going to a school that has a certain type of you know performance guarantees, outcome guarantees, job guarantees, generally what happens to school then when they if you're eligible for that guarantee and the school says, hey, we're going to refund your tuition money, they will send us that. And we just, in essence, cancel the loan for the money that's been refunded. Wow, and so we, you know, we do that with the school on behalf of the student. Yeah. I think that's amazing. And I think that um, it touches on just like commitment to skills, outcomes, and things like that. And we talked a little bit about it in the pre-chat, like how very few things in life period are outcomes-based. You can look at healthcare, you can look at education, but moving schools towards this kind of like outcomes-driven world. Um, as someone who's a reformer like yourself, um, can you talk a little bit deeper about like what, what we discussed earlier on outcomes and like moving towards an outcomes-driven world and why it's more difficult for traditional education to think about this and, and what people need to do in order to move in that direction? Because it sounds like that's what we're moving towards. Yeah. I mean, it's a complex subject, so I, I'll, I'm going to tackle it in two ways. So one is, and this relates to an earlier question of how skills fund loans are different than traditional student loans. A big difference is we require schools to share in the risk. So if you go borrow $25,000 to attend XYZ University and you default on that loan, the school doesn't, you know, the school's off the hook, right? If they didn't do their job. 
But if with the skills fund loan, if you can't get a job and you default on our loan, we make the school pay for a portion of that loan loss, right? So schools really have to care that, yeah, my students are enrolling, they're paying all this tuition with borrowed money. But if I don't do our job and help give them real skills and graduate and get a job, I, the school, am going to lose money when my students struggle. Yep. And, and frankly, the school is going to lose money actually before Skills Fund does, right? So one, we've really helped schools have real skin in the game, yep. real money around outcomes. So I think that's one way is like the monetary incentives. The other is just the um, students need to start demanding to know what the outcomes of any program they are. And I don't care if you're going to get an accounting degree, an English major, a coding boot camp. Students should say, hey, I want to know what happens. You know, what are the probabilities I'm going to graduate, graduate on time, get a job and what you're training for and at what pay? And if a school won't tell you that, one, I think that's a red flag. It means mm-hmm. either school doesn't track it, may not care, or maybe their outcomes aren't so good they don't want to tell you. And then really, and then second, and we talked about, sir, really, you know, dig into the numbers and make sure they're not fudging them and they're not just marketing language. But, you know, student pressure to say, I'm not going to just rely on brand or just assume just because the program's been around a long time, it's going to be good for me. I really want to know. And then two, like, what are the type of students that enrolls? Am, am I going to succeed here? Are you enrolling any student, the right type of student, the students that are like me, so that I know the program is designed to help me succeed? So ultimately, I think pressure from funders, lenders, the federal government around outcomes and pressure from students around outcomes are what will really move the needle kind of across higher ed. That's a fantastic answer. And we talked a little bit about like structure of like outcomes driven financing models and how important it is for them to be structured correctly. There are models like I know Timor, he went to App Academy uh, where they had like a deposit and then you know, after he graduated, he paid something back after he got his job. Yeah, I think deferred like, tuition. The deferred tuition. There's people moving towards like income share agreements. I think App Academy places more more engineers into Google than Berkeley does, or something like that. So, like, there's there's examples of where this type of deferred model types works. What are your thoughts about income share agreements? Where are examples where it doesn't work, and you know, where are your thoughts of that in general? Yeah, so I I think it work. You know, I I think income share agreements work well when that's like the only way students can pay for the education because what the school is really saying is we're not going to collect really any tuition money or very little until you're employed and flourishing. And if that's the business model for a school, there's hardly any better true alignment between outcomes for the student and school getting paid. The challenge comes when schools only do that haphazardly. And so in some cases, I think it's a marketing gimmick, not at all, but they'll say, hey, we've got this great income share agreement and in order to make the economics work, you know, we're going to take a percent of your income off the top. And we're assuming that some of you are going to do below average and some way above average so that we can earn our tuition back. But what that means is the above average earners maybe end up paying way more for the cost of the school than someone who paid cash, right? So you could have someone who walks in and pays $10,000 cash to go to boot camp. And the person sitting next to them, who frankly may actually come from a more disadvantaged background and maybe the one who, who needs the, the most access and assistance, may end up paying two times, it may end up paying back 20K. And so I think there's some equity and disparate impact implications that when not designed correctly, you know, there are risks that boot camps may inadvertently be not expanding access, but, but inadvertently kind of limiting it in ways that they don't intend to. Yeah. yeah. And I've heard of some boot camps like kind of addressing some of your concerns as well in terms of like the disparity between someone who is doing an income share agreement by adding a cap 
So there's a lot of interesting structure around how these loans are or like these ISAs work. So if someone who's listening is considering doing that, make sure you research what the different terms are and um, like what are the I guess thresh what are the safeguards in place to make sure that you're not paying for a number of years or like for too many years or paying an excessive amount. And then when you look at kind of financing the career transition overall, so there's like ISAs, deferred tuition, getting a loan, like how should people think about them as they're researching this kind of paying for their school and living expenses? And like, what advice do you have for them to make sure that they're not, that they're fully aware of all the options? Yeah, I think a great question. I actually think it's start first with the education, right? Mm -hmm. Pick what you want to learn, pick the school and make sure you've got that right. And then ask yourself the question of what's the best way to pay for it. And it mm-hmm. could be that there's two or three schools or program that are equal. And then the next question is, okay, the one that's going to provide me the right type of financing for my background and needs and situation is the school I'm going to go to, right? So this one has an ISA, this one doesn't, that might make a difference. But start with the school or the education mm-hmm. and then ask, you know, how do I pay for it? And it's really, you know, demand, demand from the school and apples by apples comparison. If I take out a loan at the end of the day, how much is the max I could possibly pay back? If I take do deferred tuition, what's the max I could possibly pay back? And if I do an ISA, what's the max I possibly could pay back? And so then you know, well, under this scenario, it's 14K. Under this one, it's 11K. And under this one, it's 22K. And then you could say, okay, well, do I want to pay more? Because maybe you want to pay more. Maybe the monthly payments are lower or you don't have to pay anything. Maybe one comes with a guarantee that the other one doesn't, right? So really just understand the pros and cons, but, but sort of demand the school help. If you, can't, if you don't, can't get access to the information, make the school give you an apples by apples comparison. Yeah. yeah. And I think it's interesting that we are talking about education and labor markets and things like that, because a lot of times when you, when you think about education and labor markets, the employer is kind of like also like the factor because a lot of people aren't always going to school just to learn something. They're going there to be able to get into a certain type of job. And speaking of, you know, technology taking over every industry, you know, the role of capital markets, like even cap, like big banking institutions like Archer and I, you know, are hiring significant amounts of software engineers and, di- and other kinds of roles that can benefit from these accelerated learning models. And so my question to you is, Given that people are in careers, like several different careers over a lifetime versus one over a longer period of time, what do you think the role of skills fund and boot camps is in corporate education? Yeah, I think there's, I think there's a huge role. I, you know, I think I just the reality of American workforce training over the last couple generations is that employers stopped doing a lot of their own education training programs, right? And some of that's because they just disinvested in it. Some of it is, as employees don't stick around, right? For very long, you've spent a lot training someone, they go work for your competitor. Is that a wise investment? And I think what we're seeing is that employers are now realizing whether it's their own workforce that they want to help upskill or as a pipeline for new talent, partnering with accelerated learning programs like coding bootcamps is a great opportunity. And I think part of it is because, again, if you wanted to send back a, you know, send someone on your, on your team to go back and get a, a degree, how do you know the degree is going to be any good? How do you know they're actually getting anything out of it? It takes a long time. Whereas if you send them to a coding bootcamp, you have a pretty good idea if you've done your homework as, a, as an employer, exactly what they're learning, how long it's going to take, what the results are going to be. So I think there's huge opportunities. And as the economy continues to probably require people to get reskilled a couple of times in their life, 
the only way that really works is if it's short, compressed, focused, because the opportunity cost to quit your job, or even if you're going to keep your job, the opportunity costs are still time away from family, friends, kids, life when you're back in school. And so yeah. minimizing those opportunity costs while still helping people get the training they need for the kind of the next thing in their career, yeah, I think is why the power of the bootcamp model is huge. And only, only really, we're only at the front end of this wave. We're not, I don't think we're even at the, the end of the beginning. If we think of this over the next, you know, as a generational education shift, not a two or three or five year shift. Yeah. Yeah. For the people that don't know, can you break down what opportunity costs are like around time? Because people may yeah, not understand it, it, it's, it's really, if I do X, what am I giving up? So if I have a choice tonight to go to the movies versus go have you know dinner with someone and I choose to go to the movies, well, the opportunity cost, I may love the movie, but I'm not going to get the conversation at dinner. Yeah. right? Or if more, more specifically, if I stay in the workforce working... And this is, uh, I'll just use my own example, right? I, I kept wanting to go back to graduate school. But every time I got ready to think about graduate school, I thought, well, geez, that's going to cost me two years at least out of the workforce. So that's, that's two years of income I'm not earning. Yep. And it's going to cost me you know, all the tuition. And do I really know, right? And I, I made the judgment, I would just, if I just hustled in the workforce faster and harder and picked up stuff along the way, for me, I'd probably end up better in my career than, than going back to graduate yeah. school. But so it's, it's like, when you think about the cost of education, Think about the time it's going to take and what you could be doing with that time otherwise. Yeah. And that's how you think about opportunity costs. Yeah. And uh, on the topic of um, like picking the right school, you mentioned earlier that obviously you put a lot of uh, emphasis on outcomes, but other factors that you look at when it comes to a school that our listener can use to evaluate what option is right for them. Yeah, well, I mean, we, we look at outcomes. We, we look at when, what, are, what are they training and how engaged are employers, right? So we've had schools that just assume because they have a successful coding program and you know, a successful, I don't know, front-end developer program in, in an X language in one city, that's going to be just as what's needed in another city. But it turns out, you know, I like to, you know, Tip O'Neill, a famous speaker of the house, like to say, all politics is local. All coding is local. All labor markets are local. And what you discover is that you know some cities and communities have huge need for Python, some have huge need for Java programmers, some are are very you know front end web development, others are full stack. And so understanding that the school really is tied into the labor markets and has lots of employers helping them design the curriculum, I think is really important. And then really understanding you know, is the school a right fit for you? So we actually look at the school's admissions practices, right? I, I think there's frankly nothing more reprehensible and immoral in higher education generally. When schools admit a student, they know with almost 100% likelihood it's going to drop out. Right? You're just encouraging someone to make a bad choice, collect their tuition money for one or two or three semesters, and then they drop out and they're, they, they're kind of given the shaft. And so we want to make sure that schools are saying, look, we know who we serve and can succeed. Like We, want to, we're, we expect students already have self-taught themselves some coding or they don't have to have any experience or you know we really want to take students who have a college degree or we really want to work with you know first generation college students who may have not completed a degree or have no formal education so making sure you're going to a school that can serve you as a person and as a learner and your learning style i think is you know that's unique to each student but i would really spend time on the campus or you know, if it's an online program, you know, really try and understand, is it the right school for you, how you learn or not? Because, I th- you know, there are nuances, even in coding schools and how they teach and, and their philosophy of education 
that can make a huge difference on if you're going to be successful or yeah. not. And I like the point that you brought up that like learning how to code and finding a job, it's not just in San Francisco or New York or the big cities. There's tech jobs everywhere. And it's not just the tech companies. Like Ruben said, banks are hiring a lot of people. From your end, do you see a lot of these loans originating from specific places like big cities? Or are you seeing these loans originating from all over the country? So all over the country, we lend to students in all 50 states. I think the fastest rate of enrollment growth of boot camps is not in the big cities. It's mm. in Charlotte and mm. Denver. That's kind of a big city. Phoenix, right? Mm. Detroit, right? Where mm. you have, mm. you know, because again, every, everyone's trying to hire coders. Everyone's hiring to hire software developers. And so, and they're not as sexy, right? They're, everyone thinks of San Francisco or New York. But you know, we tend to see where the population is, right? So, you know, Houston, not seen as a tech city. Houston, you know, I think has more Fortune 500 headquarters than any place but New York. Uh, and it's the third largest city in the country. Massive demand, right? Insurance companies, every healthcare company that is trying to hire coders uh, of all stripes. And so we see huge growth in the non, you know, non-tech-centered places as well as in the tech-centered places. Yeah, yeah. No, that makes a lot of sense. And um, speaking of, you know, things that you've done in your life and, and the choices that you've made, you also started an organization called College Portfolio. Can you talk about that, the acquisition and, you know, why you started it and how it plays into your, your fight for higher ed reform? Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I, uh, I helped uh, run uh, kind of a unique, uh, I'm a, kind of an MBA boot camp that was trying to take a can you take a two-year MBA and compress it into about six months for entrepreneurs? Uh, wow. And we were successful. But one of the things the faculty discovered is that you know a lot of students were going back to graduate school to reinvent their career because they had been in investment banking or consulting. And no one actually helped them in that two-year MBA reinvent their career and understand how to use their gifts and what to do. And so the recruiters show up on campus and they just go back into the same industry. They might be making a lot more money, but they were just as miserable two years after getting their MBA. And so mm -hmm. we created a curriculum called Life of Meaning to help you really understand who you are and how do you use your gifts and skills to kind of do something meaningful to you. And what was interesting is the graduate students kept saying, I wish someone had given this to me as an undergrad. Like it would have saved me so much trouble. So College Portfolio was a platform to help undergraduate students identify, one, how do you figure out what you want to do with your life? Like no one as an undergrad helped me even ask me the right questions to get me thinking in the right way about it. So I had my own experience with this. And then, you know, employers consistently say college graduates don't have the skills employers want. So if you're an undergraduate student and you want to get a great job and career, how do you know what skills employers want? How do you know if you have them? And if you don't have them, how do you get them? And so our platform was designed to help undergraduate students do that. And it got acquired by a business skills boot camp that was really trying to help graduate students, undergraduate students do the same thing. You're, you're leaving college. You're ready to go for the world of work. So we're going to help you get all those last little bit of skills you didn't get from your college. And that's really how I came upon the idea for Skills Fund because I was then working at that boot camp that acquired College Portfolio and we were struggling. They were struggling with how do our students pay for this boot camp and how do we prove to the world that we actually have phenomenal outcomes. That yeah. Like, yeah. Right? And so that was the twin idea of Skills Fund is let's find the schools that do great. Let's tell the world they do great and that we can prove it. And then let's finance their students. Yeah. yeah. And I'm sure you've changed uh, thousands of lives because it literally, we see a lot of people struggle with the bridge period, the period between them not having a job in tech and that 12-month gap that of them getting to that job. And then once they get that job, their life changes. They can afford a lot of new things. They can afford to invest in their own learning and their career growth. 
have you uh, has Skills Fund hired any bootcamp grads? We have hired a bootcamp grads. Uh, what's funny is, and again, this is an, I think a good story because you know a lot of bootcamp grads don't go into coding per se, right? So one of our financing credit analysts uh, went to a uh, coding school because he wanted to learn how to code. He did a lot of modeling in Excel and SQL, but wanted to get better at it. But he's not a full time coder. He's a he's a credit finance guy, mm-hmm. uh, and we've hired him. And then similarly, we had a great, very young. She was you know in her early twenties, but a really phenomenal kind of data person who left us to go to one of the boot camps we partner with because she realized that to get ahead in her career, she wanted to learn coding. And so we have both hired and sent uh, <laughs> team members to boot camps, which is, which is really nice. The nice thing is they're all boot camps that we've uh, partnered with. Uh, so yeah. uh, that's a awesome. good thing. That's amazing. That's nice. amazing. And no, before going into the lightning round, uh, I think I'll be remiss to ask. And speaking about like asking the right questions, I think as a champion uh, for a higher ed reform that you are, and I've always asked this question to myself, like, why isn't the Department of Labor so tied into like the Department of Education, given that there's this this tight relationship? And we don't have to answer that question, but maybe if you want to touch on it, you can. Something that I've thought deeply about is like, what's the role of labor unions? Just because there's millions of people in these labor unions, there's people that are in roles that are going to be automated. You know, how do they, you know, be a part of the future? How can they like work into these different new models and how, how are they integrated in your thoughts around this new reformed educational world? I mean, you know, I, I think part of the challenge is, you know, we, our economy is changing and we have structures in place that were built for an old economy, right? So if you just think of education, it, it's sort of a manufacturing model. You, you enter in kindergarten and you go, you know, the bell dings every 50 minutes and you kind of go on this conveyor belt up to high school and then maybe you go on to college. And, you know, that doesn't really fit the modern economy. At one point, it was like you have higher education and then you have the labor department. Well, that doesn't really fit. The, it may have fit the economy 100 years ago, 75 years ago, but not today. So part of the challenge we as a country and not just not just the United States, but just industrial societies face is in a world where there's no lifetime employment, technology is changing so rapidly, people have to constantly reskill. We have to rethink how we just the very structures of the institutions that are going to help people do that, right? So I would probably merge the labor department and education department together yeah. uh, and, and right duplicative programs. I think labor unions, you know, in my judgment, need to think about if people are going to be switching jobs that much, why doesn't the labor union become the source of their health care, their retirement benefits, their career planning, frankly, access to financing for yep. skill retraining? You know, there's lots of ways I think that a labor union or you know, a, a, an association doesn't have to be a quote unquote a union, but some support structure that really says, great, we're going to be with you on this kind of chaotic journey of your career. Yeah. Uh, we know it's going to be a little chaotic because the economy is chaotic, but we're going to provide some foundations and stability to help you make really all these transition points. Yep. And I think that'd be a, a fantastic role for a variety of organizations and kind of including a, a modern union to really serve their members, which ultimately would be the, the, their students, their workforce well. Love it. Yeah, that's a really good answer. So at this point in the podcast, we do the lightning round. And uh, as a listener of our podcast, you probably know that we look for things like strategies, tactics, resources that our listeners can use to break into tech. Archer, take it away. Yeah. So this question takes us back to the basics. And imagine you just move to a new city. You don't know anyone. And um, you only have $100 to get back on your feet and break into tech. So kind of what would you do and how would you spend that $100? I would uh, spend the $100 
I would get clear on as best I can what I want to do. What is breaking the tech? What does that mean? Does that mean I want to work at a tech company, in a startup, in a tech job, even if it's not a tech company, right? So yeah. get clear. Mm-hmm. And then I would spend that $100 buying you know, coffee for 50 people until I got a job, right? And I would find the 50 smartest people and I'd be really clear. I'd like, look, I want to work at a startup and I will do anything they ask me to do, including, you know, being the you know, paid intern or like, I want to learn, I want to be a coder in, in whatever, the automobile industry. Yeah. So, and so just that's try to get your foot in the door. Yep. Yeah. Can you tell the listeners something about yourself professionally or personally that they would never forget? Oh, that they'd never forget. Um, <laughs> that's a good question. There's, there's a lot. You know, you know, I, it, it's, uh, you know, I, that's, I don't know. I mean, I, you know, part of it is like, just never, ever give up. I know that's hard, but like, I was dyslexic growing up. Uh, I had to go to tutors. I felt like a total, you know, I, I, you know, I was told I was going to be in special ed if I didn't go to tutors. And I, you know, I felt a little bit like a, like a loser, right? I got the little L above my forehead, but I, I stuck with it. You know, I eventually learned how to read, how to write. I've been fired from jobs before. I've been fired on the front page of a newspaper before because, mm-hmm. you know, I'm a, I'm a reformer. I like to shake yeah. things up and it doesn't yeah. always work. You know, I've started companies that haven't worked. I've started companies that have worked and find that inner resiliency and, you know, never give up. That's sort of my motto It's just keep pushing forward. And, you know, the world will turn sometimes in your favor, sometimes not. Just don't give up. Yeah. yeah. Love it. Trust and um, on the podcast, we, a lot, we talk a lot about daily routines, but I want to switch it up and talk about learning styles. So for you, what is your best learning style and how do you approach uh, kind of that growth mindset of like learning new skills? Yeah. So I learn by writing and by doing, right? So uh, there's a great, I think everyone should read. It's, it's probably 50 years old by now, but there's an article by Peter Drucker called Managing Oneself. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's really about understand how your boss learns, right? Some people learn by reading, some by talking, some by doing some by listening. And if you're, if you don't know how your boss learns, you're going to be in for a rough thing. But if you don't know how you learn, it's going to be a lot harder, right? So I can read a book and I won't remember it. But if I'm underlining in the book and writing in the margins, I'll remember it. But what's best is to then go try it, right? So I wanted to learn how to paint in encaustic painting, which is like colored beeswax, right? So you're painting with mm-hmm. wax. I read a bunch of books about it, but at the end of the day, I had to actually go melt a bunch of wax and mm-hmm. take a class and yeah. mess around and try it and then go watch a video and read another book. So for me, it's, it's writing. And so I love whiteboards, right? I, if I'm in a meeting, it's, I'm writing, but I'm not writing because I'm, I want other people to see what I'm writing. I'm writing because that's how it's going to get in my brain. Mm-hmm. And then I need to go do it you know, in reality and, and learn by doing. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a fantastic answer. I mean, before we close out, what's the best way to stay in touch with you? You know, uh, my email is rick at skills.fund. It's really easy. Just send me an email. Uh, just pop me a note on LinkedIn or wherever and uh, ha- happy to hear from any of the listeners. Okay, awesome. sounds good. And yeah. without further ado, let's break in. Let's break, let's break in. in. Great. Thanks, guys. Thanks for checking us out. We appreciate you for listening and always love your feedback on how we can do better. If you enjoyed this, let us know what you thought on the reviews by going to iTunes, searching for Breaking Into Startups, subscribing to our podcast, and leaving a review. Also, if you know someone who came from a non-traditional background and is looking to break into tech, encourage them to sign up to our newsletter or tell them to join the Breaking Into Startups community on Facebook. Remember, if they don't let you in through the front door, go through the back door, around it, under it, or through it. Let's break in.